Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Are you concerned America's economy is on the decline or heading for a recession soon? Why does it seem like manufacturing has all gone overseas? Is the changing workforce a bad thing or just normal evolution? Well, how about Obamacare? What effect has it had on our economy, and what can we do to reverse it? What impact will the recent tax reform have on jobs and the U.S. economy? So many questions, and our guest today, Dr. Casey Mulligan, an economics professor and the author of The Redistribution Recession, How Labor Market Distortions Contracted the Economy. He's got some unique answers to these questions and a very data-driven perspective, which he's going to share with us. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Dr. Mulligan. Hey, good afternoon. So your background is in economics. Why did you choose to study uh, the field? Yeah, well, I definitely was interested in it in school, and maybe uh, I started to realize I was pretty good at it. So I, I stayed with it, and it's been fun and paid the bills ever since. Well, that's good. I don't know how many people would say it's fun, but typically those in economics who study it really enjoy it. So in your opinion, how is the U.S. economy generally doing at the moment? Well, um, the tax bill, I think, is a big boost you could expect from one single event. Of course, there are lots of events that are happening, but we had a pretty high tax rate on business uh, compared to the rest of the world, and that just came into line uh, a couple months ago, and that, that should be noticeable. Okay. Well, do you think we're headed for a recession, or did the tax, the new uh, tax rules, especially for businesses, did that head that off? These are always things hard things to predict, but it would be a, a bit of a surprise to have a recession while uh, we're enjoying just the beginning of a new low tax, uh, new low tax rate and the growth that goes with it. Hmm. Your recent book, The Redistribution Recession, uh, discusses how the last recession was really about redistribution. What do you mean by that? Well, um, it was fairly straightforward at at some level that um, when we had the financial uh, panic, if you want, or or crash, um, the federal government stepped forward with a whole bunch of new policies that would help people who have low incomes and help people who are unemployed. We already had policies like that, but there were a a bunch of new ones. Um, President Bush put some of those in, and then uh, when President Obama took over, there was the stimulus doing that. And if if you're going to increase the rewards to people who are out of work and increase the rewards to people with low incomes, you're going to get more people out of work and more people with low incomes. Um, So the redistribution part is that, yeah, we're stepping forward to help people with low incomes or who are out of work, but the recession part is, yeah, there's less work and less income to be had in the nation. It seems so logical to me, right, and probably to so many people. If you're taking money from those who are working and giving to those who are not working, 
um, you know, there's policies to put in place for people who are temporarily out of work, but to keep paying for people not to work, at some point we're going to run out of money, right, and, and that's a recession. So if it's obvious to some of us, why wouldn't it be obvious to those that are making the policies? Do you think they intended on purpose the effect that it has? Do you think the intention was to have a redistribution of wealth? Um, now, a bit of that's a, a political question, which isn't my expertise, but um, I can tell the way the laws are written that, yeah, they did intend to redistribute. It was the Democrats who who were writing the, the laws once Obama came in. Um, and you could tell by the way they were written that incentives were not a concern, that they wanted to get help to certain groups of people, um, which might provide the base support that they have politically. So they did that. And, and another part of it is I think people wanted some additional redistribution. It's kind of a scary time, and they want more assistance in case maybe they need it. So there was also a, a certain demand for redistribution. Then that doesn't stop the consequences. When you have redistribution, you're going to have a smaller economic pie. Um, but there was a degree to which people maybe were willing to tolerate that. It was disappointing when they, especially the Obama people, wouldn't acknowledge that, hey, we're doing redistribution and that's shrinking the pie and try to make the argument like I just did that it was maybe worth it. Instead, they tried to claim that we're going to get both. We're going to redistribute and make a bigger economic pie, and that, that just doesn't happen. Now, that, that was a fantasy. And then naturally, people were disappointed when the fantasy didn't come out as promised. So when they instituted or implemented this policy, it was probably for political reasons, for votes, you think? Yeah, it's getting a little bit beyond my expertise. Votes or enthusiasm among their, their base supporters, some combination of that. Because hmm. there were some famous um, or infamous policies, right, like the Obama phone and um, – some, some other giveaways, right, or they appeared to be giveaways. And was that part of this redistribution? Yeah. It, there, were, there were many things like that. Um, some of them got more press than others. but um, and, and the ones that got press were kind of representative, like, like the Obama phone or the 99 weeks of assistance. Um, the food stamps started to get some press later. Uh, the food stamps became more generous and more important really they became easier to get food stamps um and there were a bunch of other things and in fact there was a health insurance assistance program that looked a lot like obamacare this is before obamacare came along but had very much the same wording in it um but all those examples have this redistribution feature in common um and when you add them all together as a total package it was having a quite a noticeable effect on, on the economy. Hmm. So you've done extensive work on the Affordable Care Act, and it seems you believe it impacted employment and productivity. Can you explain this dynamic? Well, it was similar to the stimulus, actually written by the same people who wrote the stimulus in some of the same language. Um, it was redistribution. It was expanding uh, programs for people with low incomes and people who are out of work. And 
and this was on a permanent basis, unlike the stimulus, which was, I think, intended to be temporary for a few months or years. Um, Obamacare is designed to be forever, and it's providing health insurance assistance to people with low incomes, people when they're out of work in between jobs. Um, that wasn't there before. We had assistance like that before, but Obamacare added to that. And also the financing of it, they finance it by having the people who work pay for it. Um, and the benefits go to the people who either don't work or have low incomes. And so that just um, encourages, as we've discussed, not working and having low incomes. Not not everybody responds to these incentives, um, but that's, you don't need that to get a noticeable effect if you have just, say, 2 or 3% of the workforce respond to that. That's a big dent in employment. That, In fact, that's a, that would be a sizable recession in and of itself for 2 or 3% of people to go out of work and then 97% of the people stay working. So that um, it was kind of the stimulus put on a, on a permanent basis with a kind of a health care marketing around it. So what do you think was the most misunderstood point about the Affordable Care Act? And what would be a more productive, economically productive solution? Well, easily the most misunderstood was that the Affordable Care Act was penalizing work and earning. The administration had never said that. In fact, they denied it at, at different points. And the law was kind of designed either by accident or intentionally to kind of hide those facts. And they, those facts did stay hidden uh, for a while. But it, it, it's just a, it's a law of economics. If you want to redistribute from people who are working to people who are not working, you're going to discourage working. Now, maybe it's a desirable thing to do. That's fine. But it, as I said, it's, it's probably a little more sensible to say, hey, we like the redistribution. We don't like making the pie smaller. We want to balance those two somehow and and have a new balance there. Um, and this kind of misperception, the Europeans haven't suffered from this. They, they just have an outright payroll tax for their health programs. So they don't pretend that, that workers don't get taxed for this to happen. They, they're quite above board about it. Um, and it's been understood that Europeans have had high taxes for a number of decades, most of my lifetime, and they have a smaller economy as a result. And whether they are okay with that or not is kind of up to them, but at least they acknowledge that that's how things work. Do you have any ideas as to what might be a solution to our health insurance issue? I think most people believe that it would be fair, right, for – uh, not a right per se, but fair that uh, insurance should be available to all people, that good medical care is available to all people, that uh, a lot of people get into trouble financially if they don't have uh, adequate insurance and they have a catastrophic illness or accident uh, or major medical event, right? And people just suffer with that. But then on the other hand, you know, if we want a robust economy, uh, we we don't want to pay extra taxes, right? And those who are working don't want to pay the taxes for the health insurance for those who aren't working. So what what would be a viable solution? I, I think you have to acknowledge um, 
that that too much free stuff is going to be a problem. If things are free, then what are people working for? But if people don't work, then how are we going to have any of the stuff that we want to pass out for free? So, um, you know, the, the, the communist or socialist economies demonstrated that in an all too vivid way. Um, you can't have everything be free. And as that relates to health, you might say, well, I just want health to be free. But the thing is that the way our economy is moving, and it makes some sense it moves in this direction, that more and more of what we do is health. Because we've kind of conquered some of the basic things like housing and so on. So as more and more of what we produce is health, we can't have all that we produce be free, or nearly all that we produce be free. It has to be paid for. Um, and people would need to work in order to have the money to pay for that. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't ever help people, but it would make, I think, more sense to have assistance for a smaller segment of the population, um, not to have a program that says, hey, pretty much any American can have health care at the federal government's expense. So that's just not going to be workable, and there's no incentives around that. And we get worse and worse every year as the health part of the economy gets bigger and bigger. This free stuff phenomenon would just grow and grow on itself. Um, I think eventually this attitude that, well, health care ought to be free, we won't, our, our children, our grandchildren might not have that attitude because it's just a mess uh, to execute. Um, I could understand that attitude in the 60s or 70s when health care was just a few percent of, of the economy, but when you're getting to a point where it's a third uh, pushing a half of the economy, you can't have all that much be free. So is it that significant a percentage of our economy because baby boomers are getting older and requiring more care, we're living longer? Uh, that's part of it. Um, part of it is just the progress that's been made. We've gotten more productive and, say, growing food. Um, so we... Uh, most of what we do is not growing food because we're pretty good at just having a few people involved in activities enough to feed all of us. Um, and we're making progress in, in other areas too. That, that's economic growth. And so naturally, um, as the economy grows and you kind of solve those basics, people are interested in, well, I want to be healthier. I want to, I want to live longer. I want those other things. And naturally the economy, when that's what people want, the economy reorients itself toward that. What about the cost of health care for Americans compared to other countries? It seems like we underwrite so much of the uh, pharmaceutical, medical, biotech research and development for the rest of the world because we as Americans pay so much more for pharmaceuticals and other health care compared to the rest of the world? There's a few things going on there. In that pharmaceutical area, I think you're right. We do pay more compared to what we get um, versus the rest of the world. In the rest of health, though, we pay more, but we get more. Um, and those results are easy to see, for example, in the cancer Area, you look at somebody who gets the bad news about a, a tumor, a breast tumor, or a prostate tumor, or something like that. Um, if they get that news in America, they live uh, a couple years longer. Um, 
than people who get that news in England or France or Germany. And a big reason for that is how much money we spend on it. Um, and it's probably money well spent. But I would agree with you, in the pharmaceutical area, we, get, we pay more for the same pills than, than the Europeans do. And not just the Europeans, I mean, the rest of the world. And that's a tough problem that we can make progress on, I think. We somehow need to um, help the inventors of these drugs obtain their revenue from the entire world and not primarily from America. So shifting subjects for a moment, universal basic income. Uh, are you familiar with that concept and have you studied it at all? Yeah, it, it, it's actually um, kind of a typical teaching uh, tool that we use in economics classes have for decades. So it, it is a bit interesting that it's coming into the real policy arena of late. And as a pure economic matter, um, we, we tend to say, you know, rather than giving people stuff, maybe give them the money and let them decide what stuff they want with that. And that partly comes from an attitude of just respecting people and that they know better than the government does. Um, that would be a, guy, a reason like a guy like Milton Friedman very much favored uh, universal basic income as opposed to the other types of welfare programs that give away particular items, whether they be food stamps or or medical care or free schooling or, or what have you. Um, so there's an economic argument for that. I think the political argument has always been the, the other way. If you're giving away money, it's not clear who else benefits other than the person who gets it. Whereas if you give away schooling, the teachers understand, hey, we're benefiting here. Or if we give away health care, the doctors and nurses understand that, hey, we're, we're benefiting. So I think the politis- politics will always tend to push you away from the cash awards and toward uh, giving away particular goods that a politically powerful industry happens to be producing. Well, I think today it's coming up more and more because of the concern with technology and robots and artificial intelligence replacing workers. And so the talk has been just tax the robots and that tax would pay for the universal basic income program. And I think universal basic income is just another word for welfare, right? It's just a, um, a, a more updated, elegant way of saying welfare. Yeah, it's a cash welfare, but yes, yeah, it is welfare for sure. It's for the low income people. And some, it's been said these robots and artificial intelligence will be replacing not necessarily the poor, low income, who are probably not working, um, but it'll replace some of those jobs and some of Middle America jobs. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's always hard to, to to predict the future, and you want to do it with plenty of humility. But that attitude uh, has been expressed for over 100 years because um, there's been new inventions coming online important new inventions coming online for over 100 years. And there was always concern that masses of people will will not work um, involuntarily, so to speak, because because of that trend. Um, You know, early on, it was the automation in farming. You got farm machines, uh, fertilizer, later genetic treatments that allowed us to grow so much food with so few people. 
And the view was, well, what do these people do who used to plant and pick and so on? What are they going to do? And the answer we can say in hindsight is they did other things. Um, and there's many other things to do. Computers are, are not new. Some of the robots are new, but computers are not new. And a number of fields have been incredibly transformed by computers. Uh, in accounting, computers can do things that accountants used to do manually. Even my own profession, computers do things that we used to do by hand. And the opposite's happened. It's not that we've been put out of work. We, we work differently. We don't waste our time on the things that computers can do for us. But we're so much more productive that um, there's really a lot more demand for what we do. We can do it cheaper um, and better and more accurately. So I think you'll have a lot of professions like that. Uh, trucking is another example where, um, again, I'm going to predict the future with humility, but with certainly there will be computers driving trucks on the highway um, in the pretty near future. But that doesn't mean there won't be jobs for truckers. That means truckers won't be driving on the highway. That, that is true. But there'll be plenty of other things for truckers to do, like maybe doing the local driving or supervising the, uh, the loading and unloading and, and those sort of things. And when you have the machines doing that cross-country work or the interstate driving of a truck, trucking will be cheaper and people want more trucking. They'll do a lot more things in trucks. Um, so trucks will have to be built, delivered, made and maintained. Um, so I could easily see that we have more people working in trucking in the future, despite the fact that there won't be truckers behind the wheel when it's on the interstate. Well, and, you know, you mentioned trucking and, it's, you know, airline pilots and, you know, so many, well, they, they talk about Uber drivers, right? You know, how many um, Uber drivers are out there, Lyft drivers are out there that uh, will be replaced by autonomous driving cars and, so a lot of people will be impacted, but it sounds like your position is, hey, it'll just, those workers will just shift the work that they're doing and bring value to the marketplace in a different way. Yeah, but that's certainly the big picture. And any of these changes, there can be people who are caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, and so they may not be glad for the changes. Like in the farming example I, I gave, there are, while it's absolutely correct that there weren't millions of would-be farmers not working, there certainly are were rural areas that did suffer when all the people left the farm and, and went to the city. Um, so there'll be some transition um, pain felt by, by some of the people. Um, but for most of us, it'll be great progress, number one. Number two, it won't be associated with lots of people out of work. Do you have an opinion about the stock market? Oh, I don't even try to predict that with humility. I just lay off of that. <laughs> um, it's a fascinating entertainment to, to watch it up and down, but it is hard to, to know where it's going. And furthermore, I mean, in terms of what I study, in terms of the full national economy, an awful lot of economic activities, not the stock market. I mean, first of all, the labor market's not the stock market. And a lot of people don't realize this. Three-quarters of the national income that's earned goes to labor, not, not to capital. And then, you, then when you just take the capital part, which is only a quarter of what's going on, um, most of that's not in the stock market. It would be um, 
involved with with loans as opposed to equity transactions, or would be involved with equity transactions um, or positions that are not publicly traded. You know, your smaller businesses aren't aren't in the Dow, aren't in the S and P 500. Um, so that's one of the reasons why the stock market seems to have kind of mind of its own relative to what's going on nationally. It's because it's it's a, really a smaller piece, quite a small piece of the full economy. I think you said that very, very well. And really most people do think that the Wall Street is an indicator of how the economy is doing. And it really isn't. It really is just about the capital markets. And I think more so in the last 20, 30 years, those who influence uh, those capital markets, but it, it, I think you said it very well, uh, and I, I totally agree. So from a and politics aside, um, are you optimistic about our future in the short term, long term economically? Are you concerned? I mean, in general, I'm an optimist, and I can definitely see um, exciting things and, and changes I I am concerned. I'm I'm not a European, I guess. I'm a gringo in every sense of the word. That I'm not enthusiastic of becoming more like Europe. Uh, I like to visit Europe, but I'm not sure I want to live there. Um, you know, the high gas taxes, the small cars that they have, uh, smaller houses. That's not how I think about America. But there's certainly a trend in terms of policy to become more and more. European with our policies. Um, that's not something I'm looking forward to, and I'm probably not alone with that. Well, this administration, from a political perspective, seems to not want that as well, right? Yeah, I would think so. It's, it's a little hard to know what um, what they want, um, but they would. They seem to be noticeably different than Obama or Mrs. Clinton, who seem to admire the European way. Um, you know, I don't detect that admiration in, in the current administration. So that that must be an obvious difference. Yes, I would agree with that, certainly. certainly. Well, before we wrap up this um, very interesting uh, discussion, is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with our audience today? Well, I think since given the topic we covered, I think it's worth touching on the kind of the single payer idea because it, it's – continually discussed, um, in fact, increasingly discussed, that we would have a single-payer um, health care system, so-called. Another way it's expressed is, well, we'll have Medicare for all. That's another way to kind of describe it. Um, and the same mistake, I think, it's made in discussing that. That's not to say we don't want to have that, but you've got to realize what it really is. And it is a socialized system in the sense that if we're all on Medicare – are all on a single-payer system, that means we don't pay for ourselves. We pay for the other people, and the other people pay for us. And that has all the incentive problems. Um, and I see, that especially the advocates of Medicare for All, they ignore that, that incentive issues. They say, hey, yeah, we're going to have to have a lot of taxes to pay for Medicare for All. But on the other hand, look at all the money that's taken out of your check. Um, and that comes out to a wash, so don't worry. And I don't agree with that. Worry a lot. Yes, it comes out as a wash in that sense. But the incentives are very different when the money take, is taken out of my check for everyone else's stuff as opposed to the money coming out of my check for my family's stuff. 
it's a very different incentive uh, situation. Um, and a single-payer approach really discourages people from working and taking care of themselves because they can rely on everyone else. And that it's kind of a vicious circle that everyone else thinks they can rely on everyone else, and in the end, we don't have anybody to rely on. Um, so I, I hope that's appreciated, and I think it's kind of the American way to appreciate that maybe a little better than the Europeans do. So while Senator Sanders might not advertise what we're talking about, I think there are a lot of Americans who, who will recognize that. Has Medicare worked out, though? Do you consider um, that program a success? For the people who are on it, it's worked out pretty well, um, partly because they're a minority of the population. So when you have a minority relying on the majority, it's, it's somewhat feasible. The other thing is there are people at the natural part of life that wouldn't be working anyway. So you say, okay, we have a program and discourage the people who are on it from working. Well, they wouldn't be working anyway, so maybe the impact's not all that great. Although that may be changing as health changes and so on, that people in their late 60s, early 70s may be working a lot in the future. But when the programs are created, your people 65 and older weren't working anyway, so you weren't so worried about it. Um, and you have some health programs for children be a similar, maybe a, a, a similar thing. But Medicare for all means for all, and for all the middle-aged people who do most of the work, um, we're going to be discouraging them from doing that work um, by telling them, hey, a major thing that you want is for free. Other people will pay for it. And at some point, we run out of money, right? As baby boomers age and they become a larger demographic group that requires medical care, who's going to pay for that? Yeah, and it's not even just the – There's. I like to think of an economic pie, and it gets smaller and smaller as you redistribute it. And so it's, it's – in a sense, not even a question to come with the money. It's just, the pie ain't there. It hasn't been baked, so we can't eat it like we thought. Um, that was the problem with the communist countries. They were very unproductive and produced very little of value because nobody had any incentive to, to produce anything. And when nothing's getting produced, there's nothing we can have. Um, and, and that's the, the real problem. And it, the thing you can count on from a market system is that the pie will grow and the pie will get bigger. Um, and a big pie makes a lot of problems a lot easier. So speaking of communism, we've got Venezuela, right? If it's such a um, – if that experiment doesn't work, why do countries insist on going there, like Venezuela? Well, power is important. So if you put yourself in the situation of somebody who, who's in power um, – and maybe they know or maybe they don't know that centralizing decisions and the allocation of resources will shrink the economic pie, as we discussed. They understand that. But nonetheless, the more it's centralized, the more of it's passing through their hands, the more important that they are, uh, and so on. If you look at, say, as our government has grown in terms of regulation and spending and so on, look at real estate prices in the Washington, D.C. area. They get They go up and up and up because – it's much more valuable to be near Washington, D.C. today than it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago um, because of how much of our activity passes through that town. Um, and so it's, the people in power have a personal incentive to see their power grow. And the, the, the challenge for society is how can the regular people resist that? And that's, that's a challenge. Um, 
one of the answers that one of the best answers we come up with is not a great answer is people be able to move away. And so if the leaders don't treat them well and, and shrink the pie too much, that they can leave. And that's why, of course, the communist countries have put put up walls and fences and uh, guards with guns to hold the people in um, because they know that that one of the best checks on their power is the ability of people to move away and live in another place where the government treats them a little better. Well, speaking of the opposite of centralization of power, the decentralization of power, and I think that leads us to the blockchain and cryptocurrency. Do you have any thoughts in the decentralization of money, so to speak? Well, there's no free lunch there either. I mean, these, uh, these technologies use a lot of energy, uh, computer hardware. Um, and so we have to work to mine that energy and so on to, to feed the computers that make the Bitcoins or whatever would be involved with that. Um, but maybe, maybe we'll, Probably we will. We always make progress. Um, we'll figure out how to do that with less energy drain, less use of machines. Um, that would be great. I, you can look at the other side of the coin, that, that no pun intended, that the, the Bitcoin is pretty cool. They didn't come from the Federal Reserve, who's been running our monetary system for so long. And that, that's kind of one of the unfortunate results when you put an industry in the hands of a public agency and let them run it. They're not very innovative and not very creative. Um, and people maybe even aren't aware of what they're missing out on because it wasn't invented because the creative people are in the private sector. So I, do, I would hope that those kind of activities can continue in the private sector and where we can see creative solutions uh, come forth. Well, and I, I, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, there is no free lunch with crypto. However, I think it does represent a big threat to um, the governments and those that control our money supply, which is a private group, right, as we know, um, private group of bankers, so to speak, controlling our, our money supply. Um, I think crypto represents a, a threat an absolute threat to the establishment. Uh, and right now, you know, early adopters, the DV techie people are really into it. Um, more and more people are becoming aware, uh, more early adopters. And at some point there's going to be critical mass if things don't get shut down or, uh, well, I, I don't think it's going away. I don't think blockchain is going away. So um, the internet of money, so to speak, uh, I, I think I think it's here to stay, and it's in what form I don't know. I I think the government's going to regulate it. They're going to look for a way to regulate it. Uh, it will be very interesting to see what happens. I agree. That's some of the exciting stuff on on the horizon for sure. Definitely. So, Dr. Casey Mulligan, please share with us, with our audience, how they can um, contact you, reach you, read. Your book? Well, I have a number of websites that I keep going on different topics, but uh, KCBMulligan.com is my main website at the university and then links over to uh, websites for my book. Uh, I have a blog there. I have a Twitter, and they're all kind of connected in through KCBMulligan.com. Okay, excellent. And we will uh, upload a copy of this podcast to our website, Living Wealthy Radio, and we will also have 
uh, your contact information on there. Thank you so much for the discussion today and joining us on Living Wealthy Radio. Really enjoyed your, the conversation and your insight. You're welcome. Like I said, this is fun stuff from my perspective. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 